0: I trust, whoo, my news. <clears throat> I trust all of you had a fun day. I had a fun time. Lynn uh, Sanchez asked uh, if I would uh, uh, take the time to introduce my family since uh, we are new to family camp. Uh, I wanted to introduce my wife, Kristen, who is in the back there. Go ahead and stand up, Kristen, so everyone can see. And she is holding our one year old son, Jacob. And then sitting next to her and now standing is Nathan, our nine-year-old son. And we also have a 13-year-old son, Joseph, who is right there. And he's going to get back. He's going to uh, be back for that embarrassing him. But uh, tonight, uh, we're going to talk about the infinity of God. Yes. Yes. He's the voice in uh, actually, we forgot to dismiss children to the nursery. Oh, okay. So, if we could, please, if you have children who have not yet gone to the nursery, please do so. All right. Sorry. No problem at all. So, I thought it might be fitting to uh, read a, a psalm, and so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, Maybe this is the Psalm of David, and he says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully. Wonderful, wonderful are your th- are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book, were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them? If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Search me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's ask uh, the Lord's blessing on our time this evening. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you in awe and wonder of you our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would bless uh, this time of study as we uh, consider more and more uh, what your word has to say about who you are and how you have revealed yourself to us. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the topic for tonight is the infinity of God, the infinity of God. And you don't have to, you you wouldn't have to go to seminary or read a book on systematic theology to hear that word infinity. I think there's some boys and girls sitting in the front row who may have heard that word before. Has anyone ever heard of a guy named Buzz Lightyear? Right? Where does Buzz Lightyear want to go? To infinity and beyond, right? Uh, More recently, Disney uh, has come out with a video game, right? What's the name of that video game? Infinity And why do they call that video game Infinity? Or why do you think? Okay, so they come out with an infinite amount of characters that you have to buy uh, in order to play. And so actually, yeah, that's, somebody caught on to it quicker than I thought. See, that's the amount of money that Disney's going to make uh, from this video game. But do you have another theory why it's called Infinity? Because Buzz Lightyear's in it, okay, that, he's in there too, very good, yeah. I think maybe, at least the, re- the reason why they, they're telling us it's called Infinity, is because there's sort of infinite possibilities in the video game, right? You can kind of make your own level and play your own characters and go and do pretty much whatever you want. So you can spend an infinite amount of time playing video games rather than getting outside and exercising, right? okay. So we've been using that word infinity, and I think we kind of know what it means. It, it's related to a word that may have been, been thrown around already, finite. We refer to ourselves as finite creatures. That is, we have, uh, we have limits placed upon us. Okay? Now, when we think of God, we say he is infinite. That is, he is without limits. He is free from all limitations. That's what we mean when we speak of God's infinity. He is free from all limitations. And we think of, if we think about the things that we're limited by, I think there's two main things that come to mind immediately. Time and space. Right? Time and space. As far as time goes, we can only live one moment at a time. Right? We can't go back in time. We can't go into the future. We can't go back to the future. But we live... One moment at a time in sequence, okay? Uh, space. We can't be in more spaces than once, right? It might be nice to be able to be in one, more than one space at a time, but we can't. We're limited by space and time. But God is not limited by space and time. And the, the reason why he is not limited by space and time is because he created space and time. He created both space and time. Now, where do you think we would go in the Bible to see that actually it was God who created space and time? Genesis one one. Very good. And what does Genesis one one tell us? In the beginning, there's time. God created the heavens and the earth. There's space. God created space and time. They're creatures of His. And, they, uh, and he is not bound by those things. He is outside of, uh, of space and time. Now, we, as I said, cannot exist apart from space and time. It's, it's what we find ourselves in as God's creatures. And not only are we bound by space and time, but we really can't imagine what it would be like to live outside of space and time. So even when we think of God, we speak of God living in eternity past. Right? Or the future. And often when we think of that, we just think of, oh, that was a really long time ago. Or that is really a long time from here. And we're still thinking in a linear sense, right? As if God has lived for a really long time and he will continue to live for a really long time. Well, no. We're still thinking of God in time. That's because we can't imagine what it's like to live outside of time. But nevertheless, we believe. That God is outside of these things. He is outside of time and space. Now, when we say that God is not bound by time, that is, he is infinite with regard to time, we call that, we we say that God is eternal. Okay, So with regard to time, he is eternal. With regard to space, he is omnipresent. Can you first couple rows up here repeat that after me? Omnipresent. Present. That means God is perfect. That means that God is everywhere. He is everywhere present. Uh, And we also say that God is immense. So if, if you were told, if you were maybe put in a phone booth and you were told to be omnipresent in that phone booth, what would you do? You'd make yourself as big as you can. You'd try to stretch yourself out and fill up that phone booth as much as possible. But that's not how God is with regard to his omnipresence. Because if we think of God as just sort of stretched out, then part of God is here, and part of God is there, and part of God is... That's not how God fills all things. But all of God is everywhere. All of God is everywhere. He is not bound by space or time. So just for the sake of time, since we are bound by time, uh, let's just focus on God's omnipresence. God's omnipresence. The first thing I think we need to understand with regard to God's omnipresence is that God is everywhere, but he is not everything. Okay? Can you can you kids say that with me again? God is everywhere, but he is not everything. That is crucial to understand. Because I think the prevailing notion in our day and age is denies that. They forget that. And there are two views that we find in the world today that confuse God, the, cre- the creator, with creation. The first of those, of course, is what is known as pantheism. Now, pantheism is the belief that God is everything. It literally means everything is God. And so not only, uh, not only uh, this podium, but you and me, and the trees outside, and the frogs, and everything, is God. We're all God. Okay, that's the idea or notion of pantheism. God is everything. But related to that, and I think practically it's essentially the same view, is atheism. You may wonder, well, wait a minute. Isn't atheism the belief that there is no God? How can you say pantheism and atheism make the same mistake? Well, if you think about it, we as Christians, we believe that there is God and then the creation. Call that the cosmos, call it the world, nature, created reality. And we make a fundamental distinction between God the creator and creation, what he made. And we never want to confuse those things, always keep them separate. But what does the pantheist do? The pantheist says God is creation. Creation is God, and God is creation. In other words, all that there is, is the cosmos. All that there is and all that there ever will be is the cosmos. People who are into science, that may sound familiar, because that's exactly what the atheists believe. All that has ever existed, all that ever will exist is the cosmos, in other words, this is it. What you're looking at is it. And so, uh, and so there, there's very little difference between saying God is everything and saying that God is nothing. Or uh, saying uh, that we are all God or there is no God. It's like saying everybody's special. Right? If everyone's special, guess what? No one's special. If everything's God, then there is no God. And that's why, you know, you can turn on the Discovery Channel and watch uh, uh, television shows uh, about the cosmos or about the world around us. And these naturalistic scientists often speak in very high, uh, highfalutin, almost religious language as they speak of the awe and majesty and wonder of the universe. What are they doing? They're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. They're confusing creation with the creator God. Okay, so those are the two fundamental uh, things we need to understand. God is everywhere, but he is not everything. He is, we need to keep a fundamental distinction between God and the world that he created. Okay, now, the fact that God is everywhere, I believe, can be known through natural revelation. Now, when I speak of natural revelation, I'm talking about stuff that you can learn apart from the Bible. Things that may be pagan philosophers before the Bible was written, knew, or talked about. Things that other societies who have never heard of, of, of the gospel or Jesus Christ or the scriptures can can grasp at least some sense. It seems the idea that God is everywhere is something that is apparent to them. And that's why you, you often see that error of pantheism. They confuse that idea. But I think we can even look in scripture and see... That the notion that God is everywhere, that is omnipresent, is made plain to fallen man apart from special revelation. How do we know that? Well, what did Paul tell the philosophers in Acts 17? He actually quotes from a Greek philosopher, Epimenides, when he says, In him we live and move and have our being. So Paul, speaking to the Greek philosophers, is affirming at least one thing that that, uh, a a Greek philosopher said. God is everywhere. In him we live and move and have our being. But if God is everywhere, then why is he so hard to find? If God is everywhere, why is he so hard to find? Because just before that, Paul actually explained this process of a fallen man trying to find God on his own. He, he speaks of fallen man, he says that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. He speaks of these philosophers as sort of blindly groping around. Boys and girls, I don't know if you've ever uh, walked into a dark room and you couldn't find the light switch, right? Right? And you're looking around, and you're trying to find the light switch, and you can't see anything, but you're just feeling around. That's sort of the idea that Paul's describing to these philosophers. And he says that's sort of how fallen man's trying to find God on his own. They're blindly groping around in hopes that they will find God. And as it turns out, he's not far from anyone, because in him we live and move and have our being. He's everywhere. So if God is everywhere, then why is he so hard to find? That's why I think when we look at the Bible... When we look at God's revelation, there's some verses, like the verse that I read in Psalm 139, uh, where shall I flee from your your spirit? Where shall I go from your presence? You can't. You can't get away from God because he's everywhere. There are verses like that. But I think for the most part, the Bible assumes that God is everywhere. And so it rather focuses not on the fact that God is everywhere, but it focuses upon where God may be found. Okay? it focuses upon the fact or the question where may be god where may god be found and so the question isn't is god present but rather how is he present how is he present is he present as creator is he present as judge is he present as a savior those are the questions that we need uh, to ask and we need to know where we can find god as our confession says and find him as our blessedness and reward. Where might we be able to find God and meet him and encounter him and experience him as our blessedness and our reward? That's what I think the focus of the Bible is, uh, is on, uh, where this infinite God may be found. And so I, I'd like to just trace uh, briefly through Scripture how it is that God, the infinite God, who is everywhere, nevertheless reveals himself and appears to particular people in particular times, okay? And so we'll start uh, with Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, we see that, uh, that the Lord reveals himself to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and often they would approach the Lord after he reveals himself to them by constructing a simple altar, okay? So Genesis 12 is a great example The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So we see here two things. The Lord appearing to Abraham... And then Abraham responding by building an altar. Now, this altar would be very simple. It would be just whatever stones Abraham could gather and piling them up. That would be the altar. We see something pretty similar with uh, Abraham's grandson, Jacob. After the Lord appeared to Jacob when he was on the run from his brother Esau, who wanted to kill him, the Lord appeared to Jacob and Jacob woke up. Uh, He appeared in a dream to Jacob. And when Jacob awoke, we read him saying, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put on, set it up for a pillar, and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of the place Bethel. That literally means the house of God. And so here Jacob is having an interesting encounter, right? He knows that God's everywhere. But nevertheless, God appears to him in a special way. And he says, this place is special because God appeared to me. And so if you want to ask the question, how, where did the patriarchs find God as their blessedness and reward? How, did, how were they able to meet with the infinite God the, question, the answer is at the altar. Okay? The altar was the place where the patriarchs would meet with the Lord. But it's important to note that they didn't decide where to build the altar. It was where the Lord decided to appear to them. And they responded by building the altar and calling upon the name of the Lord. So the altar for the patriarchs was the place where they met the infinite God. But th- this altar was temporary, and it was occasional at the Lord's choosing. It was when God wanted to appear to them. And it was only for a specific amount of time. Okay, let's fast forward a few hundred years or more. The Lord appears to Moses at the burning bush. And he tells him to go back to Egypt and to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And as he, as he takes the Israelites out of Egypt and he brings them to Mount Sinai, he makes a covenant with them. And part and parcel of that covenant, actually really the, the centerpiece of that covenant, is that he wants Israel to make... Go, make him a tent, a tabernacle, which is just a fancy word for a tent, that would be right smack dab in the middle of the camp, and that would be God's holy dwelling place. That's where God would dwell, right in the middle of his people. Uh, it, so, for example, Exodus 29, the Lord saying to Moses, There, speaking of the tabernacle, there I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. Here we see the infinite God who fills the heavens, who is everywhere present, nevertheless saying, I'm going to dwell in a special way, in a special place amongst my people. And we see here a, a bit of a progression going. We, we see the Lord adding more to this because remember, where did, the, where did the patriarchs meet the Lord? Boys and girls? The altar. Now it's going to be the tabernacle, which also has an altar. But the difference with the tabernacle is it's permanent, it's always going to be in the middle of the tent, okay? It is permanent. And so it's not occasionally the Lord would show up here and there, but the Israelites would be able to know that's what the Lord is. He's always going to be there. And so that's how they could approach the Lord through the tabernacle. We have this permanent sanctuary where they could approach him. But also, remember, keep in mind, it's a tent. Has any, anyone slept in a tent before? All right. What do you do when you're done sleeping in that tent? All right, you pack it up, right? That's the cool thing with tents is they're portable. They can move. And that's how the tabernacle was. The tabernacle was portable. So we have, a, we have a, a permanent dwelling place of God, but it's also a portable dwelling place so that he can go with his people. But that wouldn't be uh, for, forever because eventually they would get to the land of Canaan. They would get to the land of Canaan and the Lord says, I'm going to choose a place where I will dwell. And that place, of course, would ultimately be Jerusalem, the city of David. Uh, Psalm 132 says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. seem to make a big deal about the fact that the Lord has chosen a particular place. So this permanent place is now a permanent and local place. And so if you lived in the Old Testament, uh, you, after the time of David, you knew that the Lord was in Jerusalem. That was his city. And if you wanted to go see the Lord, if you wanted to approach the Lord, you had to go to uh, the tabernacle, which after David died and Solomon took over, he built. he turned it into a temple, which is even more permanent. And so this permanent and particular location was where the Lord said he would meet with his people. And that's where they had to go. They had to make the commute. And all Jewish males were required to make that commute three times a year, or at least go to the three main feasts to appear before the Lord there at Jerusalem. And we even see for uh, Daniel's example who Daniel, he, he was taken away from Jerusalem, right? He lived in Jerusalem, but he was taken away to Babylon, a far-off place. But when he prayed, what did he do? He would face Jerusalem. All right? Now, do we have a particular place that we face? No. And that brings us to the time of Jesus. Because this particular location, this, this permanent and local place here in Jerusalem where the house of the Lord is, by the time we get to Jesus' time, when Jesus is born, the temple is still the place where God could be found. But that was about to change. And Jesus made that pretty clear during his ministry. Uh, We read, for example, actually in all four of the Gospels, of the Lord cleansing the temple, going in there and throwing over tables, and driving people out of the temple. And he, and he says, in the, the thing that he says is, this place is supposed to be a house of prayer, but what have you made it? A den of thieves. Literally a hideout for, for thieves and for robbers. So what did Jesus do? Even though he visited the temple, he went to the feasts, he participated in the life of, of Jewish religion, he nevertheless, by the end of his ministry, condemned the temple as no longer the house of prayer. It's no longer the legitimate place where you're going to meet God. Rather, it's a den of thieves. But he didn't just leave it at that. He taught more. And that brings us to an encounter that our Lord Jesus had with a woman, a Samaritan woman, in John chapter four. And this woman, after she had made some small talk with Jesus and realized that he who she expected him to be, she said, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And and then she goes on to ask him a theological question. Now, whether she was really interested in knowing the answer to this or not, we don't know. But she asks this question that seems very pertinent to her. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. You see, as a Samaritan woman, this, it's important to understand the Samaritans had come up with basically their own rival religion. And they had come up with their own priesthood and their own sacred place and their own sacred mountain. And so they had their own separate places of worship. And so she, seeing Jesus being a Jew, she wanted to ask him, where is the place where God may, may be found? And she gave Jesus two options. This mountain, which is the mountain that the Samaritans had chosen, or Jerusalem. Now knowing your Old Testament, what would be the right answer to that? Jerusalem. That's the place where Jesus or sorry, that's the place where God chose. This is my my house forever. But it's interesting what Jesus says. He says, "Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father." That's huge. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Some people have taken this passage and uh, and misread this passage in such a way that they think Jesus is rejecting formal, organized religion in favor of a more free-spirited religious experience. All right, so you may encounter people who say, oh, I don't need to go to church. I take a walk in the forest, or I take a walk on the beach, and I have a, I have a religious experience with God. I, I worship him in spirit, not with stuffy, uh, you know, in a stuffy church building singing hymns. That's not for me. That's not what Jesus is saying here. God, is still very, God still very much cares how we worship him. Okay, so Jesus isn't throwing all rules in the window. Notice what he said in verse 24. You must worship in this way. There's a very specific way in which we should worship him. And so while the, the, the patriarchs met God at the altar, and the Old Testament saints met God at the tabernacle and later the temple, Jesus is showing us a new way, a new place, where we may worship and encounter the infinite God in a special way. And that place is in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. Now, if you had your Bibles uh, open to John 4, you don't need to do that, but if you looked at your Bibles and, and saw those words spirit and truth, I would bet, I'd be willing to bet that those words are lowercase. Lowercase spirit, lowercase t for truth. But I would suggest to you that I think both of those words need to be capitalized. What do you do when you capitalize them? When you capitalize spirit, it means you're referring to who? The Holy Spirit. And when you capitalize truth, it means you're referring to... Who says I am the way, the truth, and the life? Jesus. Jesus. So I think what Jesus is saying here is he's saying that the only way in which you can worship the Father is through the power and operation of the Holy Spirit. Who, by the way, was the one who sanctified the tabernacle in the first place. When we read of the glory coming down on the tabernacle after it was built and coming down on the temple after it was built, that was the Holy Spirit sanctifying that place making it holy so that it was a place where people would be able to worship God. And now we have the Spirit not coming on a building, but coming upon people. And so the Holy Spirit is the one through whom we worship the Father. And then when we worship in truth, I think we worship through the only mediator between God and man, that is Christ Jesus, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus also spoke of himself as the true temple. In John chapter 2, he, he, uh, we read there verse, in verse 19, Jesus answered them, his opponents, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Course, they were misunderstanding him, and John later explains, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So, what is Jesus saying here? Jesus came, condemned the physical temple, said, It is no longer a house of prayer. It's no longer the place where you may find the infinite God and know him as your blessedness and reward. But where's the new temple? Jesus pointed at his own body and he said, Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And in, as a matter of fact, that's exactly what Jesus did as the true high priest, as the greater high priest. He offered not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own precious blood through the power of the Holy Spirit. Honing for our sins, fulfilling everything that the temple pointed forward to. And now, on Easter morning, was raised indestructible and has become Our temple. He is the one through whom, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can find God as our blessedness and reward. So where may we find the infinite God who is everywhere, but where may we find him in such a way uh, that we can have a relationship with him? Anywhere and everywhere we seek him in and through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So here now we have a place that is both, that is eternal, universal, and personal. And so <clears throat> that's all I wanted to tell you about the, the infinity of God. Uh, do we have time for questions? We do. Excellent. Yes. Yes, that's a great question. So how can God be everywhere and somewhere, in other words, right? Uh, And what does it mean for God to be everywhere and somewhere at the same time? You know, I'm sure you wives can appreciate uh, the fact that sometimes your husbands are physically present, but otherwise not, right? In the room, but maybe not completely there. God is everywhere, but in a special way. And so I think the question that we need to ask, maybe a, a helpful way to look at this, is not ask the question, is God present? Because he's everywhere. But ask the question, how is he present? Is he present just as creator and sustainer of all things? Or is he present as a covenant Lord and Savior? And I think that's, for example, what we see there at the burning bush. And and related in, uh, instances, he is, he is there with us as, uh, or he is there present as a covenant Lord and Savior. And so I think uh, Westminster Confession 7.1 is, is a helpful place to go, where it speaks of, um, it speaks of this distance between God and man. The only, really, the, really the only way that we can know God as our blessedness and reward is that he is pleased to stoop down and pleased uh, to make a covenant with us. Is that helpful? That's the question, how is he present rather than is he present? That's fine, That's fine. yeah. Yeah, even in other believers, like sometimes we choose to draw very close. And then other times these seems far away Right. Yeah, and so I think there it's important um you know, there speaking of for, for sake of hearing. Um, Sometimes it it seems as if God is near us, and sometimes it seems that he's far from us. And I think we see that especially in the Psalms, right? Uh, Lord, why have you rejected us? Lord, why have you forgotten about us? Why have you forsaken us? You see that especially there in the Psalms. I think there's a couple things we need to appreciate. Um, One, that primarily has to do with our uh, religious experience, right? So that's a personal thing. It's not God who's leaving necessarily, uh, but it's uh, the way that our, we currently are in our current state. So wh- whether we we feel abandoned emotionally or perhaps we've sinned and in, in a certain sense have estranged uh, ourselves from God, strained that relationship as it were, and we need to be brought back to faith and repentance. Um, I think it's important to understand that it's us who's turning, even though sometimes it feels like God is turning. Uh, but as we see, as we read, especially in the New Testament, and we see, you know, for example, Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. He's always there, and it's because of Christ Jesus. And so, even when we feel that estrangement, that's okay to feel it. You see it in the Psalms. Um, it, it's important for us to constantly fall back on the fact that God hasn't gone anywhere, and if we're in Christ, we're in that place uh, where, where we need to be. So, I think is is that helpful to you? A little bit? Okay. Any other questions? Yes? Is the place where the Samaritans worshipped where Abraham, or Abraham had a God? Uh, yeah, like there from the place where the Samaritans worshipped, if I'm not mistaken, I think is Mount Gerizim. Uh, maybe some other. People who have studied this before, uh, I'm I'm getting a couple nods, yes. Mount Gerizim. And I I don't seem to recall um, if Abraham ever went up there. I think the place where he sacrificed or was going to sacrifice his son Isaac was Mount Moriah. Okay, good question. Okay. Any other questions? Okay. Well, I don't see any, and I know it's kind of getting hot and stuffy in here. Uh, Should I just close in prayer? Okay, let's go ahead and close and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, that you are everywhere, that in you we live and move and have our being, and yet nevertheless you were pleased to condescend and reveal yourself to us, especially in the person and work of Christ Jesus, your Son, our Savior. We thank you that we can have fellowship with you and worship you anywhere and in, and in any place, we draw near to you, to you through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have promised that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And you do that by the power of your Holy Spirit who unites us to you. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to help us to understand and more and more grasp these concepts as you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you.